All right, well, I uh, invite you to turn back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to, Lord willing, finish this chapter uh, tonight. For those of you visiting, John, <laughs> uh, we've been in a consecutive exposition of this book uh, on and off here as we've been able to, and our passage tonight is 1 Corinthians 4. Uh, 14 through 21, a text I've titled, Essential Elements of Discipleship. Essential Elements of Discipleship. I want to talk tonight about this all-so-practical topic of discipleship from this passage. You know, the Christian life is, we could say, a life of discipleship, Right? So often in Scripture are the followers of Christ called disciples. Let me ask you, what comes to your mind when when you think of discipleship? How would you define discipleship? You can answer. I'm just curious. How would you define discipleship? Good. Somebody else. What's that? Okay. Yeah, that's a pivotal text, the Great Commission. How would you define discipleship? Being alongside someone and teaching them the way of Christ and how to live as a Christian. Okay. Yeah, that's good. Coming alongside someone and teaching them how to live as a Christian. Listen to what Mark Dever says in his little book called Discipling. So I recommend this to you. I'll also quote from The Trellis and the Vine, another great book um, and resource on this particular topic. Listen to what Dever says, though, in his book, Discipling. He says this, Discipling, here's his definition, is deliberately doing spiritual good to someone so that he or she will be more like Christ. It's good. But listen, he goes on and he says this, the Christian life is the discipled life and the discipling life. Christianity is not for, listen to this, not for loners or individualists. We struggle with that in America, don't we? It is for, he goes on to say, people traveling together down the narrow path that leads to life. You must follow and you must lead. You must be loved and you must love. And we love others best by helping them to follow Jesus down the pathway to life. And he asks, is this how you have understood Christianity and what it means to be a Christian? By the way, did you know that discipleship is not an option? Uh, Kevin already mentioned to us the Great Commission. Yes, that is a command. Matthew 28, verse 19 In fact, the last commandment that Jesus gave to his disciples before he ascended into heaven was make disciples. That's actually the main verb there, not go. (laughs) It's make disciples. Discipleship is not an option. If you're a Christian, you must be, we could put it this way, in the flow of discipleship. Are you? Uh, Listen to what Marshall and Payne write in this book, The Trellis and the Vine. 
Here's what they say. They say at the, at the most basic level, the Bible says that Jesus doesn't have two classes of disciple, those who abandon their lives to his service and those who don't. The call to discipleship is the same for all. The Great Commission, in other words, is not just for the 11. It's the basic agenda for all disciples. To be a disciple is to be a disciple maker. So let me, let me ask you again. Are you a Christian? And maybe let me ask it this way. Are you a disciple? And maybe let me ask it this way. Are you being discipled? Or maybe let me ask it this way. Are you discipling others? Are you in the flow of discipleship? See, if we understand that this is something that we must do as believers, then my next question is, then why do we struggle with it? Why is it hard? Why is it difficult? Throw out some, just shout out some, some obstacles to discipleship in your life, at least, maybe that you've experienced. Anything? We don't like telling people our struggles. Yeah, we don't like to be vulnerable, we're uncomfortable, maybe plug in all the fear of man that we talked about recently in the past couple of weeks, yeah? Self-reliance. We are reliant on self. That's a good one, right? And, you know, it's me, myself, and I, or it's, you know, I can pull myself up by my bootstraps, I'm the captain of my own destiny, I need no help from others in the Christian life. That's a temptation. Rugged individuality, Lone wolf Christianity. I mean, you could boil it down to this, right? Pride. Mark Dever says, one more quote from him insightfully, then he says this. This is, this is one of, actually, just this is even a, he suggests a cultural obstacle. He says this, today is the day of iPhones and iPads, iTunes, and let's just say the whole iLife. <laughs> But is there any place or space in the I life for the we life of Christianity? That's a challenge, isn't it? Everything is so isolated, individualistic today. I would actually suggest to you that, 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 that maybe more often than, than not, or more often than Christians are willing to admit We don't engage in discipleship. Here's another reason, the one that we're going to camp out on tonight, because we don't know what it looks like. Because we don't know what to do. Because we don't know what's involved in it. We're ignorant of how to disciple and be discipled. And and this is what I think our passage is actually going to help us with So in 1 Corinthians 4, uh, 14 through 21, Paul is going to, by his own example, demonstrate for us as he writes to the Corinthians and seeks to disciple them, he's going to demonstrate for us what true, a life on life, genuine Christian disciple involves. Let's read it together. Look at verse 14. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would, have, you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Therefore I exhort you, be 
imitators of me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Now, if you remember back, back in chapter 4, verse 6, just take a glance there for a moment, just to give us a running start here. Paul had begun to put all his cards on the table concerning why he was writing this letter to the Corinthians. You remember, the Corinthians had many, many problems. Do you remember why he said he was writing to them? Well, look at chapter 4, verse 6. What was his expressed purpose there this far? He says there, Now these things, brethren, I figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sake. Here it is. So that, listen, in us you may learn. Now that verb there is uh, manthano. It's the classic workhorse term for discipleship. It's it's the same root word found in the command in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission to make disciples. To be a disciple is to be a learner. And Paul is writing this very letter to disciple the Corinthians and all the problems that they had. So you could say in the broadest sense, the the purpose for Paul's writing this letter was to disciple this church, these believers with many weaknesses, so that they would learn to be more like Christ. And in fact, that's exactly what we see in our passage, even in the opening verse. Notice, but the purpose of his writing, he said, I read it earlier, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish, literally instruct, teach you as my beloved children. Look, that is the language of discipleship. And so here we need to learn from the apostles' example how to disciple others. We need to be discipled by Paul on how to be discipled and how to disciple others. So let's look at this. In this text, here's your outline. Paul's going to demonstrate for us that Christian discipleship involves three essential elements. Three essential elements of Christian discipleship. I'll give them to you up front. Discipleship first involves instruction. Discipleship involves instruction. Verses 14 and 15. Uh, If you're taking notes, number two, discipleship involves imitation. Verses 16 and 17. And number three, discipleship involves intervention, verses 18 through 21. So instruction, imitation, and intervention. Okay, let's just walk through it together. Now, notice first, discipleship involves instruction. It involves 
instruction. Look again to verses 14 and 15. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish or instruct or teach you as my beloved children. For you were, if you, if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you, you would not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. And the emphasis of these two verses is clearly on Paul's instruction or admonition of the Corinthians. You see that in the verb to admonish, but also in the reference to tutors here. You know, and I've already pointed out to you that the word to admonish can also be translated here to instruct. Uh, in other places, it's translated to teach. Uh, the, the word is nutheteo, and it's where we get our term nuthetic from referring to the mind. Uh, it literally means this, to place in the mind. To take something, say truth, and place it in someone's mind. It's a good picture. I love that. It's used in Romans, in Romans 15, verse 14. Paul says that he's convinced that the Roman Christians there are filled with all knowledge and able also to do this to nitheteo one another, to admonish, to instruct, to teach one another. In Colossians 1, verse 28, it's Paul's goal in ministry to proclaim Christ, and here's our term, admonishing or teaching every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. This is discipleship. This is what it involves. It involves instruction. This is what discipleship does. This is, there's no discipleship without instruction and teaching because discipleship at its core is all about learning. Learning Christ. Again, Mark Dever writes, at its core, discipling is teaching. We teach all the words that Jesus taught his disciples and all the words of the Bible. And and, and unless you think that, okay, uh, does that mean I have to be gifted as a teacher? Does that mean I have to stand up before a whiteboard and all that stuff? And no, listen to what he, he says here. Interpersonally, teaching occurs, listen, as people learn to have meaningful spiritual conversations with each other. Do you have those? Ask your friends what God has been teaching you about himself. Do you have any relationships like that with other Christians where you're instructing and encouraging one another to learn the truth of God's word? Listen, that is discipleship. And, and it doesn't need to be, like I said, a formal time. It doesn't even have to follow an official curriculum. Think about it. That's not even what Paul's letter here was to the Corinthians in its correspondence. Then, then here's, here's the question that we need to answer from these verses. What is necessary then for this kind of discipleship and instruction if it's not formal schooling? What does the instruction of discipleship actually look like? Well, notice first the positive parental nature of this instruction. Look at what he says. I don't write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. That's what it's like. 
It's not the teaching of the classroom. It's the teaching of family relationships. See what Paul is saying here by way of contrast? In other words, the goal of Paul's instruction wasn't to show the Corinthians how little they knew. It wasn't to humiliate them or to shame them or to scold them or to put them down. You, you, you know people like that, right? People who are trying to instruct you and just teach you all that they know for the very purpose. They could care less if you learn it. They just want to show you how much they know and how little you know. And Paul says that, that wasn't, that wasn't, that's not discipleship. That's not the kind of instruction that Christian discipleship does. Rather, Paul's instruction was to be like the instruction, notice the analogy here, of a loving parent towards his beloved children. And I know you maybe don't have kids, most of you here, but you at least are a child, Right? You've, you are the kid of someone else. You know the parent-child relationship. And what, what does the Bible say even, even better than uh, how about how parents should instruct their children? Listen to Ephesians 6, verse 4. Fathers do not, prov- here's another contrast, do not provoke children to anger, but bring them up, rear them, nurture and nourish them in the discipline, and here's our word, and instruction of the Lord. Listen, Christian, that is what true discipleship looks like. That's the kind of instruction that we're to give and to be given by one another. The instruction involved in true discipleship is not proud. It's not condescending but rather it's positive and parental and patient. It doesn't provoke those who are supposed to be learning to anger. It nurtures them and cares for them and instructs them in love. Do you do that with one another? Um, Discipleship doesn't condescend but it communicates with kindness and love for others and their spiritual good. Paul says it this way, 1 Timothy 1.5, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart. So let me ask you, do you have friends, brothers and sisters, who do this for you? When was the last time someone did this for you? When was the last time you did this for someone else with this motive? Are you in the flow of discipleship? Are you a Christian? So this kind of instruction is is parental, it's patient, it's positive in its nature. But notice also the personal responsibility of this instruction. Look at verse 17. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you... Would not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. What do we make of this particular verse? Well, continuing, notice the theme of parental instruction. Paul now points out to the Corinthians that he was different than all the other people who were trying to influence them in that he, listen, had a personal responsibility 
He had skin in the game. He was personally invested in them as their spiritual father. He had a, he had a relationship with them at a, a different level. He had a responsibility that as a parent, as a father, as a spiritual father, that they as tutors didn't have. Listen, there's so many voices clamoring for your attention, seeking to instruct you, Christian. Look, just open your Facebook feed. That doesn't mean that's true discipleship. According to the book of Acts, Paul was the one who founded the church in Corinth. The way he puts it here is that in Christ Jesus, through the gospel, he had literally begotten them. It's birthing language. And, and, and therefore, he, he had a, then, as their spiritual father, he had a special interest in them. He had a personal stake in their well-doing. In their, he had a responsibility for their spiritual growth that these others didn't have. So, so let, let me ask you this. Are you involved in any relationships like that? Are you on the receiving end of that? And are you on the giving end of that? You need both. Have you ever been in a discipleship relationship before where you felt so invested in, you, you felt so responsible for the spiritual well-being of this person It was as if they were your spiritual child, one whom you labored and toiled over to love and to serve and to see nourished and to spiritual maturity and health. One whom you you were pained to see go a different direction. Have you ever been in a relationship like that? Have you experienced true Christian discipleship? Many of you had mentors who become just as close to you, if not closer to you, than your parents, your biological family. This is the kind of relationship that is cultivated by true discipleship. This is the kind of instruction that we are to give and to receive to one another. Notice the deliberate contrast that Paul makes here of himself as their father, and the countless or myriads of tutors that were trying to influence them. Um, I skipped over it, but this, this, this language of tutor, it's an interesting picture, and it's probably one that we don't, we don't intuitively grasp because we don't have anything like it today necessarily in our culture. The word here refers to the, <clears throat> the practice in Paul's day of assigning a child who was underage to a guardian uh, kind of like a nanny of sorts, I guess, is the cl- maybe cl- closest thing that we have, who would be responsible for watching over the child's education and upbringing until that child was of age. And then, once the child hit a certain age, the tutor would become obsolete. And so John MacArthur explains it this way. Tutors refer to home instructors, usually slaves, who were responsible for the basic training and moral upbringing of the small children, they were not teachers in a formal sense, but were more guardians and helpers. And Paul actually uses the same picture and metaphor in Galatians chapter 3. It's the only other place he uses this term to describe what our life was like under the law before Christ. Uh, Listen to what he says. 
It gives you a good idea of what he means here. Therefore, the laws become our tutor, our guardian, to, to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But listen to this, and this is key. But now that faith has come, now that you're of age, we are no longer under a tutor. And, and then the point being, pull that into what Paul's saying here then. There comes a time, guys, when a tutor has no more influence. They're essentially a hired hand for a short season. Parents, on the other hand, are far more personally and permanently responsible for the instruction of their children than tutors ever could be. Do you see what Paul's doing here? You see, this is the difference, right, between babysitting and parenting. <laughs> you know, my wife used to say, hey, I thought I was going to be a, I thought I was really prepared for, uh, for children, for marriage and for children, because I used to babysit a lot. I used to nanny a lot. And she realizes now, man, that is so different. And here's why. Nannies get to go home. There's a time when you're off the clock if you're a nanny, if you're a babysitter. Your responsibility ends. Not so for the parent. So let me ask you this then. In terms of discipleship, have you ever felt this kind of personal responsibility for the instruction of those in your sphere of influence? That's involvement, isn't it? And this isn't, let me just say this, this isn't just for pastors and elders and leaders in the church. Colossians 3 verse 16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another. Paul's not talking to pastors there. Martin Luther wrote this in the day and age where the Roman Catholic Church tended to think of ministry in a very professional way, only for priests. He says this very simply, the ministry of the Word, Christian, belongs to all. Are you in the flow of discipleship? Are you being discipled? Are you discipling others? Are you taking responsibility for your fellow brother and sister in Christ? Look, this is what it looks like to see a culture of discipleship cultivated in a church. You want to know what it looks like? You know it's happening when every member of the body is taking personal and loving responsibility for the growth of the entire body. That's how you know it's happening. This is Ephesians 4, 15 and 16 on full display. But speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in all aspects into Him who's the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of just the pastors and teachers. No. Each individual part causes the growth of the body, listen, for the building up of itself in love. If you're a Christian, you have this responsibility. Discipleship involves mutual responsibility for loving instruction. That is essential. That's your first essential element. Discipleship, Christian discipleship involves 
instruction. Notice the second essential element we see in the next two verses, verses 16 and 17. And that is this, discipleship involves imitation. Not just instruction, but imitation. And this is critical, guys. Notice, Paul goes on to say, Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. For this reason I've sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now notice first the command, okay? Notice first the command in verse 16. I exhort you, Paul says, be imitators of me. You see, here we're reminded, like with many other things in life, that the Christian life is best learned not just by teaching, but also by modeling. The word here that Paul uses is, it's where we get our term to mimic from. And even the verb that Paul uses uh, here for exhort, it means to come alongside. So, Mandy, I like your definition earlier of discipleship, to come alongside. In, in other words, it's as if Paul is telling the Corinthians, look, get alongside me and mimic me. Look how powerful How powerful is it? How powerful can it be to have one good example to follow? How much more effective it is at times for someone to show you rather than simply to tell you, right? Uh, You know, I was longing for this. I was yesterday, went home for just a brief moment uh, to assemble or attempt to assemble uh, a pool pump filter that we just ordered because our other one on our redneck pool kind of broke. And so, and, and, and it's amazing. It's like those things, they have the min- minimal instructions. And it's like, at, at the very least, it's like, look, give me a diagram. And it's like three pictures. That's not helpful. You know, Ikea, on the other hand, <laughs> has, learned, has learned no words, only pictures. And, and look, that's helpful. And, and we know this through even YouTube, right? You're, what do you do if you don't know how to do something? You YouTube it, right? You just, you, it, there's a tutorial, and that's even better than just reading a long paragraph of instructions. It's like, if I can just watch a two-minute video, forget the paragraph of instructions, right? That's the, that's the principle here. How helpful to imitate, to see, to watch someone put on display how to live the Christian life. Not just to instruct me, but now to follow me as I live it. Listen again to Mark Dever. Ultimately, discipling involves living out the whole Christian life before others. We communicate not merely with our words, but with our whole lives. Discipling is inviting others to imitate you, making your trust in Christ an example to be followed. And listen to this. It requires you, Christian, to be willing to be watched and then folding people into your life so that they actually do watch. Are you folding people into your life in that way? I love that. 
That's a good picture, isn't it? It's a good word. Are you folding people into your life? If you're not, you're not discipling. You're missing out on this essential element of true Christian discipleship. And this is precisely what Paul did for the Corinthians. And he would go on even later, chapter 11, verse 1, to say, Yet be imitators of me. And this time he adds, remember, just as I also am of Christ. And that's a helpful addition, isn't it? It's a helpful clarification. See, we're not called to imitate everything about somebody, preferences, hairstyle, mannerisms, right? There are things we just don't need to imitate. We're not called to mimic. We're to imitate only that which is reflective of the character of Christ in that person. Hebrews 13, 7, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, listen, imitate their faith. That's it. Do you have Christian men and women in your life, listen, that, that you look up to and you model your life after because of their faith? Christian, you must. If you are to be in the flow of discipleship, you must. Are names, faces, lives coming to mind right now? If they're not, then you're lacking something. Friends, mentors, leaders who are further along in their sanctification into the Christian walk, who can help you, whom you can mimic spiritually, you need that. And you need to be that for others. Let me ask it this way. Are there, are there Christians in your life that you can look to as an example? And are you being an example to others? What kind of example? Because notice next, not just the command, but notice the consistency here modeled by Paul in verse 17. He says, for this reason I've sent to you Timothy, who's my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now this is such an interesting uh, verse here. What's amazing to me, think about this for a moment. What's amazing to me here is that Paul tells them, verse 16, hey, imitate me. And then, verse 17, he says, for that, he sends them Timothy. Think about that. You picking up what I'm putting down? Imitate me. And for that, I'm going to send Timothy. What does that tell us about Timothy? That he so imitated Paul that they could imitate Timothy and be imitating Paul. How consistent Look, that's what discipleship does. It replicates. You know, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul describes Timothy this way, for I have no one else of kindred spirit, I love that word, who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. The word there for kindred spirit is literally same-souled. It's like-minded. Timothy and Paul's heart beat 
as one. They were so like-minded. They were so same-souled. Why? Because Timothy had successfully imitated his beloved mentor and friend, his spiritual father, in all of the right ways. So Paul knew that he could send Timothy and Timothy would get ministry done the same way that he would do it as if he were there. I love that. Can you say that about anybody in your life? And so much so, notice, Paul could confidently say here to the Corinthians that Timothy will remind you of my ways. And notice, not only is Paul's life consistently modeled before Timothy and in and through Timothy, but he also says, not just Timothy, verse 17, look at this. This is pretty incredible too. Just as I teach everywhere in every church, not just this one guy, Everywhere. Paul's life was so consistent that he was the same everywhere he went and ministered. He was the same towards the Corinthians as he was towards Timothy, as he was everywhere in every church. Think about then the implications for imitation and discipleship. Paul was a model of consistency and integrity of life. Therefore, he could say, imitate me. Are you able to say that to others? Is is your life worth following everywhere you go? Or only in some places? Only parts. Only when you're at church. Not when you're playing basketball. Are you the same everywhere? Can you be imitated everywhere? Would, the, would, the, would, the, would a copy of you be consistent if there was, was imitation at your home, imitation at your work, imitation at your school, imitation at your job, imitation at church, imitation around your family, imitation at vacation? Would you be able to say that, that if somebody imitated you at all those different places that they'd come up with the same pattern. How consistent is your life when it is imitated? If someone were to imitate you, would they find themselves more like Christ in every area? On the flip side of that question, are you coming alongside others and imitating the Christ-like qualities you admire about them? Do you even have close enough Christian relationships to do that with? Do you have people in your life to imitate and to be imitated by? So discipleship involves not just instruction, but this is so essential, also imitation. But third and final essential element of Christian discipleship. Notice discipleship will also often involve intervention. Because we sin. Uh, notice we see the rest. We see this in the rest of these verses. Now, verses eighteen through twenty-one. Paul concludes chapter four. Now, some have become arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod? 
or with a spirit or with love and a spirit of gentleness. You see, one of the, listen, one of the occupational hazards to discipleship is sin will be exposed. You get close enough to somebody, that's going to happen in you or in them. And when that happens in a true Christian discipleship relationship, true Christians will intervene. That's what Paul models for us here. Again, listen to Mark Dever. He writes this, Sometimes discipling requires you to warn someone about the choices he or she is making. A part of being a Christian is recognizing that sin deceives us and we need other believers to help us see the things we cannot see about ourselves. New sins become visible in the course of our discipling relationships. That is so true. And so if you're, if you're here and get into the, the flow of discipleship, look, you better expect this to happen to you and you better expect that you'll be doing this for others, intervening because we're always helping each other with our sins. That's true Christian discipleship. Not just instructing, instructing, not just modeling, but intervening, correcting, rebuking, reproving. Look, if... um, I, you, you may have heard me say before, or in reference to church discipline, you know, I often tell, I've often tell people that church discipline is always going on in our church. We should always be doing steps one and two. Um, a church that has developed, listen, a culture of discipleship is a church that intervenes when sin is exposed. Do you do that for one another? Does anybody do that for you? Beloved, if you don't have that kind of a relationship with anyone, look, you, 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 you're not being discipled, and nor are you discipling others. But very quickly, now, there, there are a few requirements, though, for this kind of intervention. <laughs> you know, thankfully, they, Paul gives us some. Here, actually, there are some requirements for this intervention to actually be helpful and effective, um, four of them to be precise. Notice, first, this kind of intervention demands close proximity. Uh, Look at what he says. Now, some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon. Isn't that interesting? Isn't it an interesting principle here? And it is so true how sin seems to thrive where there is no fellowship and no accountability. You ever experienced that in your life? Is that true? This is why, listen, when people start to distance themselves from the fellowship and from the church and from the body life as a pastor, I start getting concerned. It's because of this principle right here, Proverbs 18.1, he who separates himself seeks his own desire and he quarrels against all sound wisdom. Look, when people stiff arm you in Christian fellowship, so often it's because there's sin they're seeking to protect. And listen, the Bible is very clear. Sin dies 
in close-range combat. It cannot be dealt with at a distance. In Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault. Paul says here, I'm coming. I'm coming to you. We need to close the gap. Guys, are you in the habit of going to one another? Are you in the habit of moving towards one another? Look, that doesn't have to be to everybody. I understand that. We're not, we're not trying to air our dirty laundry to every single person in the church. But you need some relationships, don't you? Like you, you need a few. You need at least one who can call you out when they see sin in your life. True Christian discipleship demands a close proximity. If you're saying, hey, I don't have anybody in my life that close to be able to see when I sin, that's a problem. We need to be around each other to help each other. Social distancing is not good spiritually. You know, I was thinking in that sense, the disease of sin works the exact opposite of COVID. It spreads best when we're apart, (laughs) when we're isolated from one another. Listen, true spiritual discipleship, intervention for sin demands close proximity. That's the first requirement for this kind of intervention. But notice the second, in order for this kind of intervention to be effective, not only... Does it demand close proximity? We need to still depend on God's sovereignty. Look at this. We see this reflected in what seems like just an obligatory passing statement in the middle of verse 19. But Paul says, I'll come to you soon. And then these words, if the Lord wills. It's good. It's a good word. It's not a throwaway statement. Nothing in Scripture is. You see, even though Paul had his plans, he still acknowledged the fact that God was the one who ultimately had to direct his steps even to accomplish his ministry. Beloved, there are times in discipleship relationships when you do everything right and nothing happens. And there are times when you seem to do so much wrong, and yet God in His grace sovereignly moves to grow an individual, and we must trust God's sovereignty in our discipleship relationships. Remember what we saw earlier, chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity. To each one I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. God is the ultimate discipler. He's the one who ultimately grows us. We're only instruments in His hands. Only if God wills then will discipleship be successful. We have to depend on Him. We have to depend on Him. So the intervention that is sometimes required in discipleship The man's close proximity depends on God's sovereignty. Notice third, in order for our intervention to be helpful, we must learn to discern spiritual reality. 
We must learn to discern spiritual reality. Look at the second half of verse 19 into verse 20. And I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What is Paul saying here? You see, Paul's concern was for true spiritual change. That's what he means by power here. Not mere lip service or fancy, impressive talk. That's what he means by words here. That's that's what he was going there to see. He was going there to see if there was any real change in the Corinthians. If there was any power over sin. You see, the Corinthians were good at talking a big game, but Paul wasn't to be fooled. He knew that words meant very little without the power of God to produce real spiritual fruit. You remember back in chapter 2, he's already already said in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2, he's put mere words, human words, in contrast with the power of God in the same way. Notice, my message or literally my word and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Why? So that your faith would not rest in the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Beloved, it doesn't matter. Think about this then. What is Paul going to see? What is he going to discern? He's looking for real spiritual fruit. If you're going to confront sin, if you're going to intervene, and you're going to disciple one another, then you need to learn how to look for this. Not just, you're going to have to look past some flowery words sometimes. Because, beloved, it doesn't matter how much theology a person can talk, that doesn't mean they're mature. Do you understand that? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What big words they know, how much of Wayne Grudem's systematic they've read, how many books are on their shelf. Look at their life. Is there power or is there just mere words? Without spiritual, real spiritual power demonstrated in their life to produce spiritual fruit and give them victory over patterns of sin, their words mean nothing. Paul knew this. And so he was, going to, he was going to them to find out just how much power the Corinthians had over their sin. The true and effective discipleship must learn to measure spiritual realities because we want real holiness, not just talk of holiness. Can you tell the difference? Christian, can you tell the difference even in your own life? When you spend time with each other, are you able to truly help one another with your sins? Or, or, or do you just get together and talk a big talk, but never do anything about it. That's not discipleship. That's mere words. Paul's after power. So the intervention that is sometimes required in discipleship demands close proximity, depends on God's sovereignty, discerns spiritual reality. Lastly, notice, it desires teachability. It desires teachability. Notice verse 21. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? See, Paul ends this chapter by putting the decision before the Corinthians, putting the ball in their court. 
but how they want to come to how, how they want him to come to them in this intervention. And it's like you know those choose your own uh, choose your own adventure books. <laughs> Look, you get to decide. Isn't that interesting? This is how it is. In many ways, God tells us the severity of His discipline is up to us. In other words, it depends, here's how, on how we respond. The principle is this. The more you soften, the gentler the correction. The more you stiffen, the harder the correction. Look, that's just, that, that is a rule. Look, God, why? He is opposed to the proud, and He gives grace to the humble. That's why. And so for the Corinthians, if they continued in their pride, Paul would have to come with a rod, he says. However, if they humbled themselves and became teachable, which was far better to be desired, Paul would come then with love and a spirit of gentleness You know, think of Psalm 32. Just listen. You can write down Psalm 32, verses 8 and 9. This is, this is what we find, too. The psalmist, you remember it's that psalm that David describes that time when he concealed his transgression with Bathsheba and what happened. He, he suffered more. <laughs> But notice, and and what is this conclusion in that psalm? Look, I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Listen to his advice. Do not be as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Don't be like that. Don't be so stubborn that God has to whip your neck around. Don't respond that way. Desire teachability. Wouldn't it be so much easier? Guys, if you just soften to the truth. What do you desire in your discipleship relationships? Guys, how do you want those interventions for sin to go? Christian, learn to be teachable. Learn to repent quickly. I don't know about you. I prefer, I prefer the second option. So the intervention for sin that is sometimes required in discipleship demands close proximity, depends on God's sovereignty, discerns spiritual reality, and desires teachability. So let me ask you, do you have any relationships like this in the church? Have you ever done this for anyone? Have you ever had to confront somebody about sin? Uh, have you loved your brothers and sisters enough to intervene when you see them going down a path they shouldn't go? Let me ask this. Are you close enough to anyone to help them do that? Or are all your relationships shallow and full of mere words with no power? Listen, this is what real discipleship looks like. Paul demonstrates for us here what what it is and what it entails and what it involves. So in summary, genuine discipleship, true Christian discipleship involves instruction. It involves imitation and 
sometimes intervention. In other words, the Christian life, think about it this way, is a cycle of teaching, modeling, and correcting. That's all it is. Which means, let me just end here, that getting in the flow of discipleship, Christian, requires you to know your Bibles if you're going to instruct one another. Right? That just makes sense. And it requires you to live an exemplary, consistent, godly life if you're going to imitate one another. And then it also requires you to be around and involved and in relationships with one another if you're going to help one another with your sin. That, that's, that's all it is. You see, discipleship, it's not a program. These are the essential elements. If you can check these boxes and the relationships that you have here in our church, you're doing it. You're in the flow. But if you can't, if you're missing even one of them, listen, we need to excel still more. We need to excel still more. Are you in the flow of discipleship? Are you a Christian? It should be the same question. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this challenge to our lives. Lord, how practical it is for us. Lord, thank you for the, even the example of the Apostle Paul who had such a large heart for ministry for such even a difficult people. Lord, give us that same heart. Lord, and we pray that you'd bring people into our lives that we can model our lives after and be an example too, that we can instruct and be instructed by, Lord, who can help us with our sins, whom we can, by your grace, help them to please and honor Christ in greater ways. Lord, we love you and seal these truths to our hearts, we pray. Make us Christians who are in one another's lives, moving towards one another, we pray for this church that you might develop this culture here in every way that the world would not see. Oh, how we love one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.